This is the Danger Close Podcast. Beyond the books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. My guest today is the legendary Robert McKee. And I'm going to read a little bit of his bio from his latest book here. It is called Action. And it was such an honor to have him as a guest on the podcast. And here it is, a Fulbright Scholar and member of Final Draft Hollywood Hall of Fame. He is the world's most sought-after author and lecturer, known for his seminars, webinars that provide writers with crucial insight on the story universe. His writing seminars have earned him an international reputation. The cornerstones of his teaching are character, storynomics, and dialogue. Translated into 23 languages, these singular works have defined how we talk about the art of storytelling. Over the last 35 years, he has mentored screenwriters, novelists, playwrights, poets, documentary filmmakers, producers, and directors. The lists of McKee alumni include winners of over 60 Academy Awards, 200 Emmy Awards, 100 Writers Guild of America Awards, as well as recipients of the Pulitzer, Booker, Olivier, and other major prose and playwright prizes. Story was his first book right here. Dialogue, character, and his latest out right now is action. And I do want to read one passage, and I do read this at the end and ask him his thoughts. But here it is. Authoritative personalities like Plato fear the threat that comes not from an idea, but from emotion. Those in power never want us to feel. Thought can be controlled and manipulated, but emotion is willful and unpredictable. Artists threaten authority by exposing lies and inspiring passion for change. This is why when tyrants seize power, their firing squads aim at the heart of the writer. Now, without further ado, Robert McKee. Robert, thank you so much for doing this. How are you? Uh, Thank you so much uh, for having me. I'm I'm Dandy. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. More so because I am talking to you, and this is such an honor, and I'm going to try my very best not to turn this into a personal seminar uh, for for me and my writing and possible future screenwriting. So uh, I'm going to try my best, but I have so many questions and I know I'm not going to get to to all of them. I, I, I've done quite a few podcasts, but I've never written down so many questions for any of my guests. Really? Um, wow. <laughs> so, uh, so, so that makes you unique uh, and you're unique in many respects, but I also have to thank you because the showrunner, for my for the terminal list, which is adapted from my novel that came out on Amazon Prime this uh-huh. summer, um, he was in one of your seminars in two thousand one. Uh huh. Yep. Uh-huh. So I have you to thank for a lot of this. <clears throat> twenty years ago, twenty one years ago. Wow. Uh, I've been doing it for uh, over well, about forty years, mm-hmm. and so I've got a lot of uh, alumni. Yes, you do. Tens of thousands of them. A lot of very uh, prominent ones as well who have won awards, uh, Academy Awards, Emmys, everything out yeah. there. I mean, it's it's incredible the influence that you have had on screenwriting, on writers, novelists, actors, um, everyone in the business. It's uh, There's no one else out there uh, that has had such an impact. And uh, thank you for doing that. Thank you for uh, this journey that you shared and through all these seminars and these amazing books and, and all of that, because 
there is a whole generation coming up that don't even probably know how much you've influenced them. It's like the people that say that, that are authors that say, oh, Hemingway is not an influence. Well, guess what? He was an influence on someone who was an influence on you. Yeah, kind of thing. exactly. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, that's all I care. I, none of that matters to me. All that I really care about is that the, the quality of the storytelling in the world stays at the highest possible level, if not higher. And uh, so, uh, uh, it, it, you know, it's, pleasing to know that people uh, uh, benefit, help, get help from, um, to understand things from what I've written. Uh, but then it has to be translated through their talents and their genius to something worth watching or reading. So that's what matters. Yes. And I do want to ask you about that, about all that. But first, um, background. You were an actor at age eight. How do you become an actor at age eight and then a director by... 1516. How does that how does that come about? Well, you have you know arts programs in in, in grade school in my case. Uh you know, the schools do little plays. And uh uh in the my in the third grade, uh they they did a play called uh, Martin the Shoemaker. And for whatever reason, uh, the teacher who was putting this play on uh, cast me as Martin. And, uh, and I remember vividly, vividly, uh, to this day, getting my first laugh. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, uh, I had put a tablecloth on a table. And, uh, and so I did. And then I remembered that my mother sometimes uh, turned the tablecloth so that the tips of the tablecloth hung over the table rather than the square. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I rotated it and I looked at it and I thought, well, maybe, and this is all in front of an audience. And so then I thought, well, maybe uh, I should do it the way that we did it in, uh, in rehearsal. So I did it again. And then I thought, no, actually, and I did it again. And I turned that tablecloth three or four times until the audience was laughing. And I, that, I was done. I mean, that one, <laughs> that was it for the rest of my life. Uh, that was such, such a pleasure. And um, happened by accident. So then, um, so then uh, the community theater, you know, we have lots of community theater in America, and community theater, the local one, uh, cast me as a kid in some plays, and then in high school, and uh, and on it went. And so um, it's, you know, it, it um, a lot has to do with accident, but it's got to be a serendipity. Mm. But the accident is in tune with something in you, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And so it, was, it, <clears throat> it wasn't just an accident. Right. And, uh, uh, but the path was set and, and I, never, I never left it. No, you, and you're are you in New York through your thirties, and then you make the move out to to L.A. Is that how that that works? You go out to to Los Angeles and uh, yeah, really was get into screenwriting. That was probably a great mistake. Uh, <laughs> really? <laughs> well, the the first the first uh, professional career from when I was like eighteen to when I was uh, I don't know thirty was in the theater. 
And um, in those years, I directed uh, over 60 plays and I acted in at least that many plays because I did summer stock every year and that's 12 plays a summer, you know? And, um, and then off Broadway and, and, um, and then finally on Broadway and at the, <clears throat> the APA. And, um, and so I was, you know, I had a good career in the theater, but I was spending all my time looking at movies. Mm. And not necessarily watching other plays, but fascinated. This is the era of Ingmar Bergman and Fellini and Truffaut and, um, and the great Hollywood uh, masters. Uh, and uh, and so I, I got it in my mind <clears throat> that I really should take my career to, um, to Hollywood, uh, which I did. But I think uh, it was a bad choice because it was just too late. I was already in my 30s. Mm. <clears throat> if I had gone out there in my in my early 20s, right out of college, um, uh, but I didn't. And um, and what I should have done was gone out there as a you know a young guy and uh, apprenticed myself to a, a director, mm. <clears throat> learned it from the inside out. But but at any rate, I, I wrote a lot of. Um, uh, you know, I have a nice page on IMDb Pro. <laughs> I wrote a lot of uh, uh, stuff that was made, and uh, uh, but it, it it really wasn't um, what I wanted. And then again, by accident, um, <clears throat> I got invited uh, to give lectures. Yeah, and that really was the big turning point because it. A lecture is a performance, but it also is a, you know, it, it uses your mind mm -hmm. in a, in a, to prepare it and to, and to give it, it uses your mind in a, in a way that I found more deeply satisfying than when I was writing television shows and films and, um, uh, it, it really, it was what I was born to do. Yeah. What year was that first invite to go down? It was a film school that asked you to come in on a weekend. Is that how it worked? Uh, no, um, I was, yeah, I was, te I was teaching uh, part-time uh, just to make a buck at a USC film school. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, a, a place called Sherwood Oaks Experimental College. Uh, which was a, 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 a nascent uh, film school, private film school, heard about me and um, invited me there. And so I gave these, um, these lectures and, um, and workshops on Saturday mornings. And then the word spread and uh, women in film in New York heard about me. And they asked me if I could come to New York and do what I do in LA. Uh, and I said, no, because I do this on Saturday mornings and I can't go to uh, New York for months. And, and they said, well, <clears throat> could you do it over a weekend? And I thought, well, I don't know. Can anybody talk that long? And, <laughs> and so I said, I'll try. So I went out to, uh, 
to New York and I lectured all day Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and um, fine. And then the phone started ringing. Mm. And International Forum brought me to Europe, uh, cities all over America and Canada started calling at film, you know, film and film agencies in states and wherever. Um, and it just took over my life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'll say. Uh, and at some point in there, you uh, become a Fulbright scholar. And uh, is there an international component? You go overseas for that? What, yeah, that where, was, does that uh, where does that fit into this story? That, uh, well, as I said, the phone just kept ringing and I got all these invitations. And one of them was from New Zealand. Would I come to New Zealand and give my lectures uh, at least twice in Auckland and and uh, Wellington? And uh, uh, I said, sure. I said, but I'm expensive. And they said, well, let's look into that. And so they they put they went to the Fulbright Foundation, and uh, Fulbright funded it. So that New Zealand could afford it. And Peter Jackson was there and, wow. <clears throat> and Jane Campion. And uh, and then uh, then the Fulbright uh, uh, people uh, hired me uh, to sit on committees and help select other Fulbright um, <clears throat> uh, lecturers or uh, uh, writers. And so uh, so that's how it happened. Like I said, it, it wasn't planned. Uh, mm -hmm. I never had a really a, a proper career plan. <laughs> <laughs> well, you had you had a very interesting um, student in one of your classes. Um, and I forget what year it was. I think early two thousands, maybe. But uh, you look down and you see, I think uh, Kirk Douglas down there in his seventies, and uh, yeah. he's taking one of your classes and sitting next to him with Jack Valenti. Yeah. Um, yeah, um, yeah, that was a surprise. And, uh, <laughs> and so on the first break, you know, I went up to uh, Kirk Douglas and I, I welcomed him. And, and I said to him, I, you know, I, I said, why are you here? Yeah. I mean, this is Kirk Douglas, right? Right. <laughs> and he said, I swear to God, he said, oh, I feel as if I haven't done enough with my life. Yeah. I mean, wow. Um, and uh, and, the, and uh, what had happened is that he, um, prior to me, he had written his autobiography uh, uh, called The Ragman's Son about his, his father, literally his father was a ragman. His father was what today, well, then, in fact, people who go through the trash looking for today bottles and cans or whatever in those days rags uh but thanks to the um, public school system and being a superb uh, scholar and athlete uh he got a scholarship to cornell and <clears throat> went down to broadway and the rest was history right um and uh and he had written this book and and he did it, done it on his own the book was a big bestseller and so he wanted to become at age, you know, in his late 70s, yeah, I guess, early 80s. But anyway, he wanted to become a novelist. 
And that's why he's in my class. I mean, yeah. And he does it. He does it. Doesn't he write to you, I think? Uh, you know, I mean, I say that Kirk Douglas, after writing a best selling memoir, <clears throat> wants to become a novelist and decides he has to learn something after decades of, <clears throat> of working in stories all his life. And um, that just, that broke, that just moved me. I, I thought this is yeah. cool. So I really, I gave the lecture that, that weekend to Mr. Douglas, just to me. Wow. And he's there taking notes. And, um, and the guy, and then he wrote um, <clears throat> a, a, a novel that was, again, a bestseller. Um, and then he wrote a second novel, and then he had a, a big stroke. But then I tell you, he... He, he went into therapy and rewired his brain. He couldn't talk. He had aphasia, right, because of the stroke. He went into therapy and rewired his brain so that he could talk and use language. And he wrote a play at age 90. He wrote a play called Before I Forget, a one-man show that he performed for months in uh, in LA. Yeah. I mean, what? Amazing. That's but incredible. Fantastic guy. Fantastic guy. I mean, it points to the uh, the importance of one, one humility and two being a lifelong student of your craft. Um, yeah, when exactly. I was in the SEAL teams, I was a uh, in the military, I was always a student of warfare. Um, always learning, always adapting, always reading everything I possibly could on terrorism and insurgencies and counterinsurgencies and all those sorts of things. And always a student of this as well throughout my whole life. My mom is a librarian, so I grew up with this love of reading and books. And I've been uh, reading these my whole life. She introduced me to Joseph Campbell at age, uh, well, early high school, I guess, freshman, when uh, Joseph Campbell does that, uh, those interviews with Bill Moyers, oh, yeah. The Power who, of Myth in 1988. Uh, my mom, we watched it on PBS in 1988. Wow. Yep. So she's a librarian. And so then I found out oh, about yeah. Hero with a Thousand Faces. And I read that. And of course, at that age, I'm enthralled with the influence it has on George Lucas and Star Wars. But what I didn't realize that uh, by watching those interviews that Bill Moyers did with Joseph Campbell, and then the, the book, which I remember being almost a coffee table book that came out of those interviews mm -hmm. called The Power of Myth, but obviously reading Hero with a Thousand Faces, then I applied that to everything that I read or watched on television or on screen. And also what I didn't realize back then was that all the thrillers that I was reading during those days by guys like Nelson DeMille and David Morrell and AJ Quinnell and JC Pollock and Mark Olden and Stephen Hunter, they were really giving me an education in the art of storytelling that I was now filtering through what I learned from Joseph Campbell's teachings. Uh, and so I was really building this foundation that allowed me to do what I'm doing today. But the point of all that was that to have Kirk Douglas sitting there, obviously he is a student the, 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 of the grand, his craft. The grand point is that uh, people who uh, uh, really put something into the world of value tend to be people who study their whole life through. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> the notion that you can go to school, learn what you need to know to graduate, and that is enough for you to then pursue the rest of uh, your uh, your achievements in life and your career is nonsense. 
especially in a world like ours where information and ideas are pouring out of the world through the internet. Um, and so that lazy people who don't really want to pursue their, um, who don't want to, the, the Irish have an expression that you build a palace of the mind. And people who don't want to build a palace in their mind of all the knowledge they can possibly accumulate, and God knows that just a tiny sliver of the world's knowledge, <clears throat> are not going to make it in general. Now, there, I suppose there are geniuses who <clears throat> just spontaneously do things and never think about how they do what they do, but that's not, that's not most people. <laughs> I think so. Those would be outliers. I met uh, William Goldman. He was a student of mine. And uh, we uh, <clears throat> I, I chatted with him over lunch many times and talked about the process. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and uh, he is one of the greatest screenwriters Hollywood ever produced. Maybe the greatest writer of dialogue mm. Hollywood's ever seen. And Every time he goes to a play, a movie, reads a novel, anything, before he goes to sleep at night, <clears throat> he writes out his impressions of it, why it worked, why it didn't, etc. Uh, and then, of course, he accumulated, he took all those notes and then put them into books, like you know, Adventures in the Screen Trade and all that. Yes. Um, but that's his working habit. Never ever watch anything read anything that you don't think about and not just muse but write it down mm. <clears throat> and uh that that's that's a working right that's <clears throat> yeah uh i'm sure william goldman is certainly not alone in that that's the working that's the good habits of any working right no i love that i love it. i'm gonna start writing those down i've been doing that just my whole life, but not writing all those things down. But now I'm gonna now I'm gonna start. Uh, and in story right here, obviously, uh, this book has had a huge impact on and, and will continue to have a huge impact on generations of storytellers. But right here, part one, I, I was really interested with the the quote that you used to start this off in part one, and it says, "Stories are equipment for living." Hmm. Kenneth Burke. Yeah, I love Kenneth, that. That's a quote from Kenneth Burke. Uh, yeah, I, you know, he jumped off the page when I read it and, um, and so it stuck with me and, and of course he's absolutely right. Uh, stories are equipment for living in the sense that they, um, in, in many senses, first of all, they civilize you. <clears throat> Uncivilized people tend to be people who don't read, who don't enjoy stories uh, for whatever reason, or just don't do it out of out of habit or whatever the reason. Uh, as a result, they really don't understand. Um, all they have is to reference life is their own life, and they're confused naturally. If all you have to understand life is your own life. You're, <clears throat> you're going to be very tiny inside and, uh, and confused. But stories tell us uh, what it is to be a human being. Under pressure, what do other human beings do? What kind of choices do they make? 
What kind of uh, reactions from their world do they get? How do they cope with that? And you see in models of, um, of experience that makes you able to live your life uh, more successfully at, on, on one hand, that it equips you to live. But on the other hand, it also broadens you. Stories take you in the world you can never obviously experience into the past, into future, into uh, fantasies, into history, into the true everyday truth of today. It takes you into an uncountable world that you have no access to, but the writer takes you in and, and you, you come to understand how human beings and societies work, how they have worked in the past, how they might work in the future, um, what people do under pressure. And, um, and so it, it civilizes you. And um, uh, without stories, human beings would be, um, you know, back into the, into an animal state. Um, and the, I mean, we can be certain that human beings have been telling each other stories. Um, nobody knows, but I, I'm guessing hundreds of thousands of years. I don't think it, people say tens of thousands. I think it's hundreds of thousands. I'll bet you, if we could know, we'll, we'll never know. <clears throat> back in those early uh, you know, proto-humans that they danced, that they got up around the fire because they could make fires by then. Mm -hmm. They got up around the fire at night and mined or danced out their day. Mm -hmm. This is what happened to me. And that they entertained each other at, and that I'll bet you before they could, if I know, how would I know? But before they could talk, certainly long, tens of thousands of years before they could write, <clears throat> they could dance mm. and chant and whatever. But I think human beings have been telling each other stories ever since they were bipedal. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, so it's, uh, it's, uh, it's in our nature. It is. It is. And I, I think about that as I, as I write being the, uh, the recipient of all those years of evolution. Um, and maybe I want to ask you about this too, maybe, maybe de-evolution in some, in some sense for some films and, uh, out today, but, uh, uh, but some of those original stories when we did have language, when we were miming these things out, a lot of them were passing along lessons to that next generation, to those other people, uh, stories of the hunt, stories of warfare, yeah. passing along these lessons so that their children wouldn't have to learn the same lessons in, in blood. Um, the, you know, the tribe could continue to survive by passing these things along through stories that could be remembered and passed down. Um, so I do think about that and I do yeah. use fire very, uh, I put fire in my novels uh, very deliberately uh, for me, not deliberately for the, for the, for the reader, um, to, but to hearken back to those early days, because there's something in us. There's uh, there, there's something in our DNA where storytelling yeah, is just yeah, well, unnatural. I, 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 I think those first lessons were not moral lessons. Mm. Those first lessons were, and if you do this, this is what's going to happen to you. Right. This Agreed. Is, that, those first lessons were lessons of survival. Agreed. There's no morality in survival. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> right? It's either, you know, it's kill or be killed. Yep. 
And um, and then if you do this, this will get you killed. And so uh, those first lessons uh, were in that sense, you know what I mean? Not lessons mm -hmm. of a schooling kind, right? but lessons of, of survival. Exactly. And, um, it, and causal. If you do this, this is the effect. Mm -hmm. If this happens to you, this is the reaction. You know, and they're teaching each other, uh, uh, educating each other on the, the cause and effect of things. Mm -hmm. um, so they can understand how the world worked, how animals did this, how if you make a fire, here's whatever, the causal connections of, uh, of things so that they, uh, they could survive. Yeah. And, you know, I wrote the, the book um, we're going to you know, talk about today. Um, right here. On action. Um, at the beginning of the book, I, you know, I, I point out that that the stories of life and death, stories of survival, um, are the oldest, oldest stories ever written, and that the action genre is the first genre. You know, like it. probably <laughs> acted acted out around the fire uh, in in song and dance. Yep. No, I'm, uh, and I love that, of course, uh, as a thriller author myself. But here you write in the author's note, uh, the action genre enacts the master metaphor for humanity's never-ending struggle of life versus death. Action sends a self-sacrificing hero against a self-obsessed villain in a story-long fight to thwart malevolence and rescue a hapless victim. These characters, hero, villain, villain, victim, represent three opposing drives within every human being. The will to triumph, the impulse to destroy, and the hope to survive. Yeah. Man. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. You know, when you get to the heart of things, like, you know, <clears throat> the will to triumph, the impulse to destroy, <clears throat> the hope to survive, um, when, when you get to those absolute rock-bottom essentials, you know, it takes your breath away. You know, you go through the day, you know, churning as we do in our lives, saying, you know, running to the store, getting this, that, one thing or another, you know, trying to get the work done, trying to keep up with your family and your friends, whatever it is, you know, all of that um, constant activity. Mm -hmm. um, but when you pause to <clears throat> bring it all down to what it is essential, uh, that um, uh, it doesn't trivialize these things, but it puts them in perspective, certainly. Which is very important for life in general, putting things in, in relative terms. Yeah, so um, you, know, you know, it helps you not get upset about trivialities. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <You know>? Yes. <laughs> okay. So they didn't return my email. <laughs> so, you know, it just keeps... <laughs> Keeps you balanced. Yes. No. Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> yeah. And I've heard I've heard you I've heard you say that uh, that writing and writers are essential to an honorable life as individuals and as a society. And I've heard you make impassioned pleas to writers to be brave, uh, write their truth. Uh, what do you mean by that? Write your truth. And what is truth in story? Well, 
that's a subject for a big discussion and a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> gotta take the seminar. If anybody wants to know the answer, they need to take the seminar. Excuse me. I differentiate between fact and truth. Um, uh, fact is what happens. What? Uh, and uh, science and uh, journalism and all the various ways in which we, you know, investigate uh, the surfaces of life tells us what happens. If you pour this into that, it changes its color and whatever. You know, if you uh, if you uh, you know vote for a certain kind of politician, this is the whatever certain facts. Mm -hmm. But what people often don't understand is that fact is not the truth. Fact is just fact. And fact is relative to point of view. And they, they aren't hard and fast. They're, they are, they happen, there's a certain base, but then they get interpreted. And uh, and uh, and so somebody will say, well, if you vote a certain way, you get a certain uh, party in power, and that will be a disaster for society. Others say, no, if you put that party in power, that'll be the success of society, right? And mm -hmm. so they have, uh, and then they say, look what happened, and they go back and they talk about the facts, and 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 but there's a prejudice. And so facts are slippery indeed, because yeah, they happen, but uh, they're interpretable. Fine, so that's fact, and as I said, it's elusive often. Truth is deeper than that. Truth is how and why what happens, happens. Truth is causality. And so when people argue about the facts, you can get to the truth by focusing on, <clears throat> well, you think that that, that that fact had X in result, right? But let's go deeper underneath that and see how it happened, why it happened, and what it caused in the world when it did happen. And so if you dig deep enough underneath the facts with a calm mind, searching for the truth, not just evidence to back up your argument so that you can win arguments, but mm -hmm. if you really want to know the truth and you look for the deep causalities of things and, and people calm down and they agree, yeah, that's why that happened. And that's how that happens. Those are the forces that cause the change. And this is the process that, of that change. And then you can get to the truth. And that's what writers do. Writers burrow beneath the facts into the hows and whys the human beings do the things they do. <clears throat> And, and great writing penetrates the surface, goes into the deep psychologies, 
even unconscious drives of human beings, <clears throat> their conscious choices, right or wrong, whatever, the forces of society, the, the flow of power up and down the pyramid of power, the forces of Mother Nature, <clears throat> the forces of, of personal relationships, the way in which family, friends, and lovers <clears throat> cause each other to do the things they do. A writer digs into the inner life, the personal life, the social life, the physical world, trying to discover the truth. And, and a beautifully told story that creates a surface and then in the turning point exposes the truth. And you suddenly get a rush of insight and you go, oh my God, no wonder. That's who she really is. That's who he really is. That's what's really going on in that relationship, et cetera. Uh, and so I, when, I, when I autograph books, I always write, I write the phrase, write the truth, hoping that the writer that I'm, uh, that I'm signing that book understands the difference between fact and truth and pursues truth in their writing, uh, knowing, of course, that, again, there's, there's point of view. And so my sense of how and why may be very different than your sense of how and why. But in a democracy, if you if enough truth gets out from, from the right and the left and everything in between, uh, intelligent people can experience all these different points of view and then come to their own personal sense of what truth is. Um, and uh, and use it as we say to equip their life to live a better life. So um, and so, truth is the hows and whys of things, and that is the subject matter of all fine writing. Wow, amazing! And people that are watching or listening to us right now are coming to the conclusion uh, that these are more than just books about how to write a screenplay. Uh, there is so much wisdom in these books. Story was your first one. Action is the latest one. Here is dialogue. Here is character right here. These are like the master's degree courses after you read story. Um, but uh, there's a lot more in these than just, and they're obviously writers, screenwriters. These are, these are mandatory, but there's a lot more in here. Well, and, there, uh, there has to be because you, you can't write. The story is a metaphor for life, right? The story says Life is like this. It's a metaphor for life, right? All right. But you can't teach um, story without referencing the source of it all, which is life. That'd be like trying to teach music without referencing the source of it all, sound. Mm. You can't teach painting without referencing the source of it, uh, 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 line and color and shape, right? The stuff and substance of painting and, and sound and, and the 12-note the scale and chords when as the stuff and substance of, of, of music. And so the stuff and substance of story is, is life. And so, and so it, it, it's, it's not that my books are uh, <clears throat> philosophical in any sense, 
I, I, I try not to be philosophical. I try to say, look, this is how, what human beings are. This is what society is. <clears throat> this is how people make choices. This is how they take action. This is the consequences when they do, right? Mm. So I try to just dig into the stuff of, of living <clears throat> that you're going to take and use as the material for the content of the work of art you're going to create. <clears throat> and, um, and, so, um, and so that's why my books are written the way they are, because I think it's really important that the writer understand this is not just some sort of, of um, uh, formulaic, <clears throat> mm -hmm. you know, something to imitate. Um, this is a, a living form, the way music has a living form, painting has a form, and this is the form of story. And your job is to investigate life and express it in a way no one else has ever seen before. Wow. And this form would <clears throat> give you a shape. It doesn't tell you how how to write. It just it, it shows you you know that that if you throw out all that trivia, this is what's left. Mm. Right? This is what's essential. Um, and so, uh, so I don't want to mislead people into thinking that uh, you know my books are, are philosophy. Uh, but a, a book like that I wrote on character is certainly full of psychology. Right. I mean, how can you to be. think to create right. characters if you don't understand human psychology? Um, the book that I wrote on dialogue is full of, of, of uh, insights into language because how could you write dialogue if you don't understand how language works? Um, and the same as story, you know, I mean, create a story if you don't understand how life works and why mm -hmm. human beings do the things they do. So, um, <clears throat> and so it's not, it's not philosophical, but if you think it has insights, it, mm -hmm. it it's it's on purpose <laughs> because I think the, you know the 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 quality of education uh, has shifted over the the decades. And teachers now find it embarrassing for some reason to talk about why and how human beings do the things they do. Mm because that gets all tangled up in the politics of, uh, of today. Mm. And, um, and so they, 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 they teach facts, but they don't teach causalities. And, um, and so um, uh, my sense of things is that one of the reasons my books are useful to people is because it fills a hole in their education. They were not taught this <clears throat> And in high school, you know, or, or uh, even the university, <clears throat> and they were taught how to write, pass exams, and fill out, you know, essays and whatnot. But they really weren't taught taught how and why society and people work <clears throat> the way they do. And so, um, and so I I I try to ground the art forms that I write about in the truth of what. <clears throat> human nature and society really are. Um, and 
And so people, uh, you know, find it useful. You see, I, I, I do not teach how to do anything. Mm -hmm. I teach what it is. Writing is figuring out how to do it. And this is what a writer has to do. They have to figure out how and why things happen. And they have to figure out how they're going to take these characters, put them in their world, and dramatize their life and tell their story. <clears throat> what they need to understand is what a story is, mm. what dialogue is, what a character is. <clears throat> then they can go to work. And because it's a big mistake, I think, to think that you understand what story, character, and dialogue are, what those things are, because you've seen the movies. Right. <clears throat> because you've read books. You think that because you've experienced stories, you understand what all of these things are. And, <clears throat> and that if you think if you think like that, then what do you what do you do? You copy other writers. Mm. People who have not taken the effort to study it, to understand it at heart, uh, how do they know? How, when you're writing, how do you know from uh, you know from the top to bottom of a page whether or not it works? <clears throat> the way so many writers think, you know, what works or what doesn't, is to compare what they've written to what other writers have written. Hmm. And if it sounds like what other writers have written, nah, I guess it works. Well, I don't teach that. I mean, I get full of example, plenty of examples. What I teach is this is how beats go to scene. <clears throat> and that's that's it, it you know, the 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 essence of it. And um, and then you have to take your understanding of how act the human action, reaction, action, reaction, changing charge of, of, of the values in the scene build a scene, you understand how a scene works in at the heart of it, moment by moment, then you don't have to copy other people. <clears throat> then you're free to create something only you would write. And so just, just knowing, you know, seeing, studying other people's work is very important by all means. But knowing just just memorizing how other people have done things doesn't make you uh, an artist. Doesn't mean you're going to put anything of real quality into the world. <clears throat> you're just going to copy. Mm. And I have been teaching for forty years to get people to create, not copy. And to create, you have to have an understanding of the essence of the thing. If you don't, you just copy other people. And you know, you don't have to <laughs> you don't have to go to the movies or turn on TV or pick up a, you know, go to a bookstore and <clears throat> to see how much copying there is in the world. Yeah. Right. But they're really the best, the best create, you know, you know, they under they they know how to communicate, they understand what other they understand what their uh, reader and their audience expects hopes for uh but it's, an, it's always a joy to see something where you go wow i never thought that i never saw that i didn't see yeah. that coming 
Right. And that's those are the moments you have when you're dealing with an artist who creates and doesn't copy. Yeah. Are you uh surprised? I mean, my goal is always to move the genre forward, even if it's just by a degree. Every time I'm always getting better. I'm always studying my craft. Um, like that's what I owe the reader who has trusted me with time that they're never going to get back. It's something I take extremely seriously. Yeah. Um, but are you surprised at how many people maybe show up for your seminars or that you talk to or whose screenplays you may read or advise on that uh, have not studied the history of the craft, not studied the history of the genre? So in my terms, uh, who has not studied the history of the genre in which they're writing? Um, and for me, my third book was an homage to a lot of these books that, uh, move the genre forward from the most dangerous game back in 1923 oh, yeah. to yeah, yeah. rogue, to rogue male, to first blood in 1973, oh, yeah. uh, up to last of the breed in 1986, 87. So it was a, it was a hat tip to all of those. Um, but it still is shocking to me how many people that I meet who don't know the history of the genre in which they are writing. Do you find that with uh, with film and screenplays as well? Yeah, because, yes, of course. Because, A, it's lazy. People are lazy. They don't want to have to work. And to study your art form and the history of it, building up to today, um, that takes work and that time. And, you know, they, they can't be bothered. That's one thing. The second thing is they, and this is their logic. Why should I uh, study the, the, the history of my genre? Uh, what I really want to know is what is hip today? Because the, the past is past. And I want, in fact, I would like to know where the trend is going, mm. right? And so why should I look backwards? I only look forwards. I want to know where the trends are in it and what, you know, what's going to be a hit next year so that I can try to copy that idea and, uh, and, uh, and make a hit for myself, right? Um, and so that's how they think. And what they don't understand is, is first of all, if all you pay attention to is uh, what's hit today, you will recycle every cliche <laughs> that has ever been written. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the reasons we go back and study the history of the art form for ourselves and whatever genre we write in is we have to know what has been done before, <clears throat> right? Because uh, if we don't, we're just going to recycle cliche, <laughs> right? And you want to write something that nobody has seen before. But if you don't know the past, you will repeat the past and, and you will do everything that everybody's ever done and, it'll, and your work will fall flat. No one will want it because there's nothing fresh. And so one reason you study the past is not just to really understand the art form, the story form in depth, but just to learn all those terrible cliches. <laughs> Because a cliche, you see, the trouble with a cliche is actually a cliche is a great idea. That's a wonderful idea that somebody had 60 years ago, 100 years ago. And it was such a good idea that it has been repeated. 
decade after decade after decade, right? And until it has worn itself out and everybody is sick and tired of that cliche, right? Uh, And so if you don't, if you don't know the history of your art form, if you don't study the history of the genre, then you will just you know, repeat all those cliches and people will throw your, your work in, on the floor going, I've seen it before. Mm-hmm. Seen it before. And they would do. And so the only way to create something they haven't seen before is to know what they've seen before. Mm-hmm. So that you don't do that. Yep. That you do something fresh and new. And, uh, so yeah, the answer to the question is yes. I know people who don't know their history, and that's why they recycle cliches, and that's why I go to when I'm working with a writer, I go through it and I check it off. Seen this? This is a cliche, cliche, cliche. And then the poor writer sits there and says, "Well, what am I left with?" <laughs> and I said, well, you you know your own creativity, your own imagination. I mean, there's a there's a certain form like in in action mm-hmm. in the action genre the 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 core event is the hero at the mercy of the villain that is 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 essential to the form now how does the hero be, find himself at the mercy of the villain how does the hero from a position of complete helplessness turn the tables on the villain and come out on top, that's what you have to create. Mm. And if you know the, the, the action genre, you've gone back and seen Hero at the Mercy of the Villain a hundred times, and you've seen all the way writers have done it well, like in, you know, in a great diehard, brilliant, classic. Yeah. <laughs> what you right? use as an example in here? And, that, and then you see all the cliches and all the tricks and all the deus ex buddy, deus ex accident, deus ex whatever it is, all the ways in which people have tried to escape that that hard, that the hardest scene of all to write. Um, and you're armed then as a writer <clears throat> with that knowledge. And so that you can really challenge your imagination to how do I get my hero to the mercy of a villain and how do I go from absolute negative to absolute positive uh, from the uh, relationship between the two of them in a truthful way that really is you know a, a revealing of the of the depth of uh, the the ability and the power and the uh, the courage of the of the protagonist um in a way no one has ever seen before. If you if you want to write action, <clears throat> that scene, the hero at the mercy of the villain, is fundamental to the story, mm. fundamental to the form. Everybody in the audience is waiting and waiting and waiting for that that mercy scene. We call it right. And if you can turn the mercy scene in a brilliant, in character, <clears throat> insightful surprising way uh, that no one ever has done before, you will sell that screenplay. That, if you do that beautifully, wonderfully, that's a treasure. People can't wait to make that movie 
because there comes a payoff no one's seen before. Uh, but if you do it the same old tired way we've all done it, you know, then God help you. So it's a long answer to a short question, but yeah, you have to know your history in order to win the war on cliches. <laughs> win the war on cliches. I love it. And I love the examples you use in here because you use examples of movies that a lot of people have seen. Guardians of the Galaxy, obviously Die Hard, Dark Knight, Terminator, all these classics in here. Man on Fire, Logan, Deadpool. Um, it's this is fantastic. But what we were just talking about right there, I took on that challenge in my last book because I wanted to write a sniper centric novel of violent resolutions. That was kind of my, my guiding theme. And then what emerged from that was actually a theme of forgiveness that wove its way through that was, uh, was not expected at the outset, but what emerged as I was getting to know these characters through dialogue. But when you're writing a sniper centric novel, what usually happens in movies and books is that you have two snipers across from one another in buildings or on the sides of mountains and they're looking for one another. And uh, at the last second, one will see someone a split second before and fire and the bullet will go through the scope into the other guy. So it's been done over and over and over again. <laughs> so, I had, so I had to figure out how to write a sniper-centric novel with my background as a sniper in the SEAL teams. Um, and this, is the, uh, this was the fifth yeah. novel in my series and how to do that in a fresh way. And so that was the challenge I took on, and uh, and that was uh, that was fun and exciting. But I thought of it because uh, as you were talking there, doing something in a way that is uh, is different uh, was at the forefront of my mind as I was trying to figure out that scene where you have the hero and the villain together, and you think one has the drop on the other, that mercy scene, and then you flip it around. Um, well, you got me hooked. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. I don't want you to give away your novel, but. Uh, <laughs> Uh, if you solved it in a, you know, in a really bright, you know, insightful way, a satisfying way, I can't wait to read it. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, hopefully we'll be making into a show here one of these days. We'll, we'll see. We got season one in the can and, uh, we'll see what happens with, uh, with season two. Um, but when I, when I was talking earlier about there being more to these, then I mean, they're not how to obviously, but more than just for writers, more than just for screenwriters, there are so many life lessons in here. Well, that I is, don't, I, yeah, yeah. I don't write for screenwriters exclusively anymore. Story, which I wrote, what, 25 years mm -hmm. ago was for screenwriters. Mm -hmm. But since then, uh, the books that I've written on dialogue, character and, uh, so forth, uh, and action, um, are multi, uh, uh, media. Mm -hmm. So I write for screenwriting, of course, but also the great, you know, as you know, of course, the great future of storytelling in the 21st century uh, is long-form television. So I write for movies, but long-form television and novels, okay? Mm -hmm. And in character and dialogue, uh, I write for playwrights as well, um, action, you know, they, we don't have any action stories on stage <laughs> for the most part, but we but we have them in games. Mm. So I write for people who create games and uh, long form television and uh, and film, and, and so I I I've always wanted to write for all writers, mm -hmm. and the first book happened to be about screenwriting because that's what was most that was the most exciting subject 25 years ago everybody wanted to be the great american screenwriter <clears throat> but since then uh, uh, 
you know, people want to be the great American showrunner mm-hmm. in television or the great American game creator. Uh, and, and, and of course, you know, the, the desire to write novels, that's always with us and always will be. It's the, you know, it's foundational to everything. And then, of course, the theater. Uh, and so now all of my books are for all anybody who tells a story in whatever medium. Yeah, no, and they're it's, it's so valuable. Um, the showrunner for for this show, David DeGilio, who I mentioned earlier, who took my novel and turned it into an eight part series here, starring Chris Pratt on Amazon Prime. Um, he was they were so great to me. Uh, usually, uh, and, and you know this better than I do, uh, they kind of sideline the author of a novel because they don't want them on set saying you ruined my vision. Um, but from the first day, December of 2019 was the first conversation I had with David DeGilio. Chris Pratt wanted me involved uh, with the whole process. So did Antoine Fuqua, the director. So we all we got together and he involved me in the process from that first pilot episode. And really I was just a sponge. I was just learning and uh, just giving some advice here and there on some technical aspects as it pertains to the military and modern warfare. But to be through that all the way through the writer's room, then see those scripts continue to evolve after the writer's room disbands and they go off to other projects to have Max Adams, who's a former army ranger and a big fan of all of your work uh, there the whole time as well to keep it grounded in reality. Um, And and to just see that those scripts evolve and then how they evolve on the day of shooting even, or how what an actor brings to a character that you didn't anticipate when you're in a nice oh, air conditioned right. room writing the screenplay and how that affects episodes four, five, six, seven, eight. Um, so I got to see all of that then post-production and edits and, and then into the premiere and marketing, advertising, the whole thing. So I got to, I always feel extremely fortunate to have been involved in all that. Um, but uh, the showrunner, that and, and this golden age of, of television, and I'm not sure where that really starts, or it's certainly evolved over the last few years, but from Sopranos to Game of Thrones and, and everything in between from The Wire and, and everything else that has been done in television. Um, where do you see that, uh, that, that headed, or what is your experience with that over the last 20 years? Oh, well, first of all, that, that, well, you were reflecting on that attitude. Uh, we don't want the writer, you know, send the writer on vacation. We don't want the writer around. That's the movies. Yep. Okay. Because movies is, uh, uh, films are run by directors mm. and they're, they don't want the writer interfering with their vision. Okay. Well, that's movies. Mm-hmm. That's not television. Got it. Okay. And in television, <clears throat> they know that they, they are writers, most of those showrunners, mm-hmm. yep. right? They are, in fact, themselves writers. And they know they need content, they need material, they need ideas, they need characters, they need scenes, and they're, they're hungry for that. And so long form is all about the writing, not the directing. Mm. And so your experience uh, with your showrunners common in, mm. the, in uh, television. Uh, where you know they need the content, they need the material, and so they they want the writer on the inside. Where do I see it going? I think it's fantastic because when you think about it, a a a a feature film of 110 minutes, mm-hmm. let's say, is actually a miniature. It's not much time. That's why in the feature film, there's the expression of three-dimensional character. Mm-hmm. 
because in, in two hours, three dimensions for just one character, the principal character, is all you have time to dramatize. Mm. Because a, a dimension is a contradiction, right? I mean, he's, he's kind to certain people, he's cruel to other people. He's smart in certain circumstances and really stupid at other times. You know, he, he, and on it goes, right? Dimension mm -hmm. is a contradiction and it has to be a consistent contradiction. And so it takes time to dramatize that this character is not who she seems to be. She has contradictions, She's right? And three of those, three dynamic contradictions consistently uh, 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 dramatized in, in, in behaviors of the characters. If you can get three good dimensions into a principal character in a film, you've done a lot. <laughs> uh -huh. and, and three dimensions is, is, is a complex character, no mistake. Well, if you're going to, that's for two hours. Well, what do you do if you have 50 episodes, 60 episodes, a hundred episodes like some, right? Or even, even you know, 10 episodes, eight episodes. <clears throat> now, three dimensions is not enough. Mm. Because what, what, keeps, what keeps people watching a series? Two things. Revelations of character. Mm. Week after week, they're discovering new dimensionalities in the character discovering these are not who they seem to be. And as this pressure builds on them, they do this instead of that, mm -hmm. and you reveal who they really are, their complexities. <clears throat> um, and, and so the revelation of character, episode by episode, uh, fascinates and change. The characters arcing, the characters changing. What was inside <clears throat> that we couldn't see, now that we know who they are, <clears throat> that who they are is going to undergo change, and they are not going to be the same person at the end of the series they were at the beginning. Mm -hmm. So revelation and change fascinates. If, if the characters are not being revealed, if it's the same character week yeah. after week after week, if they're not changing, if they're just a block of cement, okay. you're not changing, we turn it off. So if you're going to hold their interest for 10 hours or more, you need multi-dimensional. Three dimensions is not enough. Mm. You'll exhaust three dimensions in the first two, three episodes. And so you need many, many more, more complex characters. They have to have more dimensions. And you have to have set up that they're not who they really are. They're not who they seem to be at the beginning as you reveal them, and who they are is not going to stay the same as you change them. Exactly. And that takes time. And to fill those hours, you need multidimensional characters. So I, in, my, uh, in my book on character, I analyzed Tony Soprano as a 12-dimensional character and Walter White in Breaking Bad as a 15-dimensional character. Mm. 
Tony, interestingly, does not arc. Mm. He tries to change, <laughs> but he can't. <laughs> Walter arcs. Uh. And, uh, um, and, and so this opportunity to project characters over 10, 20, 30, 40, God knows how many hours uh, year after year after year, revealing their complexities and arcing their natures, offers writers the greatest opportunity in in history to to create characters and tell stories of a density and a complexity and a fascination. No one in history, including Shakespeare, has ever had the opportunity to do. Because it takes time <clears throat> to create and reveal complexity and change it. Mm -hmm. And so the time that long-form uh, television gives the writer now offers them an opportunity to create characters and relationships between characters yeah. <clears throat> of, a, of a, a richness never been possible. Yeah. Uh, I just watched, I just finished watching uh, uh, When They See Us, which was a just four hour, just four hour uh, uh, series. Uh, won a lot of, um, a lot of awards, and deservedly so. And, uh, and I watched, superbly written, and I watched them reveal these characters and change these characters in just those four hours in ways that were, and there's five of them, you know, the, the Central Park Five. And they had five characters to deal with, delineating five characters and arcing them. Uh, and they did it in four hours, and it was brilliant. Uh, on the other hand, I just watched, finished watching Ozark. <laughs> well, Ozark was about four seasons, right? <clears throat> so now you got like 40 hours. Same thing, wonderfully complex family uh -huh. and relationships, heroes and villains, and complex psychologies. <clears throat> and so uh, um, the, this, the time that long form now offers mm. uh, is an opportunity for writers to write, create uh, stories and characters that uh, or that are unlike anything we've ever done in the past. And so I think the future, the opportunities in the future <clears throat> are superb. Mm. Uh, but needless to say, it, it takes a lot of talent and a lot of genius and a lot of knowledge to create characters of that kind of complexity and and uh, and pay, pace them out and reveal them over time mm -hmm. and and so uh, uh, it won't be easy. But I've seen such wonderful series over the years that I uh, uh, it's certainly um, possible in great great writers and things like you know Better Call Saul. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, this is, you know, these, these series are breathtaking. Yeah. And so um, it'll be, it's difficult, but it's doable. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, and now the the writer has all has has, has the power. <clears throat> And the writers become producers and directors, and now the storytellers will um, will run things in the world, and uh, so it's uh, uh, the future is uh, fantastic. Oh well, you're that fires me up right there. It's uh, I, I love hearing that as a as a writer, obviously, who learned so much on this, especially over the last two year journey with my first novel. But uh, that's something that I'm cognizant about as I write as well. Is that uh, typically in the thriller genre, uh, the character is pretty much the same in most novels and they pick them up and drop them into the next scenario. And once you save the world from a nuclear disaster, now it's from a bioweapon disaster. And then you pick it up again and drop them in, but it's essentially unchanged. Um, and I, I was very cognizant of that at the outset that my character was going to need to evolve because we're all on a journey in life. That's what we all, something that we all share uh, across, uh, no matter where you were born, uh, what country you live in today, we all share that we're on a journey. We don't know how long we have on our journeys, but we are on a journey to Together. And so is my character. Yeah. He's on a journey and hopefully he's learning from past mistakes, uh, from failures, from successes as well. And then applying that going forward as wisdom. But point being, he's continuing to evolve just like hopefully <laughs> all of us are. Uh, so I think people connect with that, that he's on a journey as they are. So I think that oh, stood yeah. out to Simon and Schuster and is standing out to readers as well. Well, those, those are two, you know, two of the great principles of character writing is people are not who they seem to be. Mm. And people are not the same as this year than they were know, two years ago. Mm. People change and people have a, have a surface that is deceptive. <clears throat> you think from what you see in someone, that's who they are. Well, they're not. That's not who they are. So who are they really? You put them under pressure. They make choices and they reveal who they really are. <clears throat> People are not consistent. That's the third grade principle. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> People are full of contradiction. <clears throat> In one circumstance, they they act one way and change the circumstance, and they become another person altogether. <clears throat> so they're not who they seem to be. They are not consistent, and they are not staying the same. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> to follow those three grand principles in, in character creation, then they that forces you to tell a, a wonderful story. Because mm. <clears throat> if you're going to reveal who they really are, <clears throat> if, you're, uh, if, if you're going to uh, change who they really are, and if you're going to make them fascinating because they, they, they are not consistent, they're contradictory, you could do all those three things. You have to give them a story vehicle that does that. And so... You know, it, it demands great storytelling. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, so, uh, uh, and you know, the the, the action is I you know uh, the, the my new book. Yep, right here. I wrote uh, in order to. Uh, oh yeah, you got one. There. Oh yeah. Yeah. We. What do you, you like the cover? That's beautiful. I love how they all work together here. Action, the art of excitement for screen, page, and game. Exactly. No, it's great. I wrote, I wrote that for action hey. writers. Yeah, I know. It was, it was but, fantastic. When, when you, you, 
you write what you're calling your work a thriller. A thriller. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of action in it, isn't it? There's a lot of action in there. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, like I call it. I, if I'm if I'm if I classify it, I classify it as a political thriller. Um, but you know, obviously, differentiate it from a medical thriller or a legal thriller, or that sort of a right. thing. Um, but uh, uh, political thriller because of not because of politics, but because of the political interactions between people, regardless of institution. Ah. Um, so it's and there are politics in in the book, obviously, because I'm dealing with government entities from the the military to uh, to law enforcement to intelligence agencies to politicians, um, and uh, and working through all those uh, interconnecting relationships and uh, nefarious conspiracies and and that sort of a thing. But uh, but. Because it's, but it's not because of the politics side of it. It's because of political yeah. interactions between people, whether it's in an office or uh, or or actual politics. Um, but political thriller is how I. But there is a lot of action. That's for sure. Exactly. <laughs> so, so you see, the, the, as I've as I've uh, <coughs> shown in my book, action it had it, it can be written in its pure form, but the most common techniques today is to merge action with politics, with <clears throat> character somehow, mm -hmm. um, to mix it with a subplot of one kind or another, and uh, and to create you know, wonderfully complex stories uh, where action is, uh, is maybe the, the heart of it, uh, but it emerges and mixes with other genres and uh, the thriller certainly being one of the most common mixtures of uh, <clears throat> of, of um, genres, uh, and um, and it, you know even uh, some comedy, mm -hmm. you know. Oh yeah, <laughs> you have to have a little of that in there. Got to like, humanize like, these characters, like like Men in Black, you know? uh -huh. <laughs> and. Uh, uh, and so action, but action is the most popular genre today. Lucky for me. Indeed. <laughs> and, and for, you know, for everybody who has a love of that genre, for people like me, uh, but it is, it is in the, in the, in movies, certainly in films uh, from Hollywood, it is the dominant genre by far. Uh, but it merges with sci-fi and fantasy and other uh, 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 stylistics, uh, and then it can be combined with all these other other uh, genres as well, like the thriller, like love stories, and so forth. Uh, and, and but it is it is so in demand mm. as a genre today. That it it, um, it it's an, it's an open door uh, into the business if you can write action really well <laughs> and do it in a pure form or merge it with other uh, other genres mm -hmm. uh, and uh, uh, but it is it is the it is the in in demand so even something that is complex you know for example uh, like I said I just finished. The last episodes of uh, Ozark. Well, Ozark is the basic genre is the family drama mm -hmm. called domestic drama. But this family has gotten involved with a you know a drug cartel, and so crime then 
emerges with a family drama uh, and the action sequences are brilliant. Mm. And so even family stories, mom, dad, son, daughter, a family story <clears throat> becomes the basis for something that is ultimately pays off in action. And so, uh, and so I, I wrote the action, this book on action, in order to give writers that extra color on their palette mm -hmm. <clears throat> so that they can, if they want, add that to the mix. Right. And um, uh, because, you know, God knows it's in demand. Right. Well, it's in, so when I, when I write these things, I find I get to know my characters through dialogue. So I might, when I start out, I have a title. I like having a title because it doesn't, even if I'm going to change it later, cause I'm not wasting bandwidth as I'm typing away, worried about coming up with a, with a, with a clever title. Um, so I have that, I have a one sentence. It's evolved from one word, which I got from Stephen Pressfield, who, uh, I misinterpreted as saying that he writes a one word, uh, theme for his novels and put it next to his typewriter. And what he actually said was that, uh, he, he knew someone who would write a couple sentences for plays yes. and put this yeah. And so, but I misinterpreted that now that we're friends, I, uh, I, now I've expanded my one word from revenge <laughs> to revenge without constraint to violent redemption. Like, that's, so that's really one word. That's a really severe discipline. I mean, that really makes it hard. <laughs> one, one good sentence is hard enough. Yeah. So, so uh, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. Uh, no, I did that. Uh, and I think it kept me on track because when that first novel made it to Simon and Schuster, um, I thought it's going to Emily Bessler at Simon and Schuster. Uh, she has her own imprint, Emily Bessler books. And if she wants to put aliens from outer space coming in this thing, I'm just going to do that because that's who, that's who she is. And I'm just going to learn. And there were hardly any content edits. And I credit that yellow right. sticky that said revenge and then expanded to revenge without constraint that had things tying back to it directly, but more importantly, indirectly to that theme that kept me on track throughout that whole process. But in dialogue now, when I, when I have that title, I have that theme, I have write a one page executive summary. And I ask myself, uh, is this worth the next year, year and a half of my life? And then if someone else was to read this two paragraphs of, of this executive summary, would that person, would it add value to their life? And would they pick it up and read it? And if the answer to both of those is yes, then I dive in and I write an outline and then I turn that into the narrative. But a lot of times I have a name for someone in their position, so-and-so director of, let's say the, uh, the CIA. Um, but I don't really know that person yet until they interact with other characters and they have these conversations. And some of the, my favorite a uh, chapter that I've ever written is chapter three in my last novel, my fifth novel. And it's not a huge action scene. There's not bullets flying. Things aren't blowing up. It's a matriarch of a family coming to talk to my main character, to my protagonist, and they're having a conversation and she's passing along wisdom. And uh, that is my hands down, though, my favorite chapter. It really became, it became emotional, actually. It became emotional. Yeah, but, well, that, you know, that's a common um, uh, <clears throat> way of working. Mm. There's basically there's two ways to work from the inside out and the outside in. Mm. And so some people start with a with a certain psychological uh, uh, complexity, and then they ask themselves, "How would a person like this talk?" Mm. Right? There are other people like yourself <clears throat> who first write the dialogue. And then they ask themselves, 
what kind of person talks like this? And that takes them into the character. And so that, and, and, and uh, many writers do it both ways. You know, sometimes they start on the inside, sometimes they start with something they can see or hear, like dialogue, and then work backwards. Um, it doesn't matter because sooner or later you'd have to do both. <clears throat> um, but um, what your what your experience, what your your method is 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 both, right? You start with an idea and then you build it into a step outline <clears throat> or executive outline, as you were calling it, and then um, and then you start listening to people talk, mm -hmm. and that's how you you know fill out their their natures, characters. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and, uh, uh, that, that knowing people out of their voices, um, is a fascinating way to, uh, uh to, to, uh, to work. Did you, did you have, um, do you have a background by any means, any chance in, um, in the theater where you, I did a little bit growing up. Yep. I did, uh, but same as you, school, uh, grade school, middle school, right. high school, that sort of a thing. Um, but then nothing, nothing from then on. Ah, because it's often uh, people whose background is in, in the theater. These are people who learned by by dialogue. Mm. They learn, you know, because the theater concentrates on dialogue. The theater is. You know, ninety percent dialogue, just ten percent visual. <clears throat> it's talk. You know, and and, and and of a of a very elevated kind. You know, theatrical dialogue is is uh, rich in metaphor. I mean, you know, the greatest of all Shakespeare. Um, and so, people who have a, a background in the theater, they have an ear. Uh, for dialogue, and that is often the way they they you know they start there, and, and they get to uh, they get to understand the characters in their story uh, by hearing them talk. Interesting. So I've never thought about that, but I did. I, I still saved all the uh, all the plays that I did as a kid. I still oh, yeah. have them with the notes in them uh, in a box upstairs here, and I'll find them see every those. now and again and pull those out and see my notes yeah. and what my handwriting looked like and remember. Yeah. So I, you know, I, I never thought about. It. I never thought about that connection before, but that's uh, probably see, it. Those first impressions when you're a kid, the first impression that you know, the things that you experience earliest in your life are the indelible. Interesting. And so having acted, having done theater, having memorized lines, <clears throat> having understood character from that out, from the talk in, inward, um, that is a, a process. People who, <clears throat> people, for example, who never acted, never uh, performed, never done theater, but who read novels as kids, Having read novels as kids, these people tend to write from the inside out. Ah, interesting. Because the novel brought them into the inner life of the characters, and that impression as a child, <clears throat> reading about the understanding characters as, as having thoughts and feelings, and then taking it outward into behavior, that process is is foundational to them 
People like me who began in the theater, the outside in is foundational. Interesting. Because that's how I learned it. Wow. So I did both. Yeah, I did both. I was reading at the yeah. same time that I was doing that theater right. stuff in grade school and middle school and high school. That That's incredible. Yeah, I've never thought about that before. I'm going to call my mom after this and thank her, though, for making me do all those plays. <laughs> but it doesn't matter because at the end of the day, you have to do both. That's it. That's so it. Wherever you start, you know, you start outside in, inside out. It doesn't matter. Wherever you start is where you start. But everything has to be done ultimately. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah, I'm going to think a little bit more about that. Uh and uh, I do want to be cognizant of your time, but I, I know we're never going to get through all these things I want to talk to you about. But uh, for everybody else that wants to know the answers to these questions, guess what? They're in these books. They're in your, your lectures. They're on your online programs. They're in, in all of those things. Um, but I did want to ask you about the things that you discuss in your lectures and in these books um, that, uh, that you see coming up again and again in the work of your students or of people who have read your work. Um, and then some of the things that might be neglected today in let's say the comic book universe, the Marvel world. Um, are there some things that you see that uh, are pervasive and survive? Or, and there are some elements that you see as vitally important to storytelling that are missing elements of the comic book world and the Marvel world. Oh, what does good writing need that it doesn't have today? Is that what you're asking? No, you, like the principles that you talk about, the stories that that you tell in your in your lectures and here, are there some things that you, when you watch the the more comic book, the more CGI, um, ah. flash, uh, that sort of a, a thing with, where the focus is on uh, yeah. visual effects yeah. and that sort of a thing? Yeah. Are there elements that are that are missing that you that you notice? Yeah, they cheat. <laughs> they cheat. Okay. <laughs> And uh, they cheat in this way. Um, uh, the ideal is that, well, first of all, in action, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's on a comic book or you know, uh, 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 illustrated novel, whatever it is, right? Action, period. The key is the villain, not the hero. <clears throat> Heroes are, heroism is a reaction to villainy. If there's no villain, heroes don't do anything. They don't need to do anything, right? And so the starting point of a great action story, whether it's animated or illustrated or whatever, (coughs) or live action, is the the antagonist, the the villain. And... (coughs) They, they cheat in the sense that <clears throat> they give their villain the most cliched motivation. Mm-hmm. You know, money, power, whatever. They don't think deeply about the villain. And so uh, in order to defeat the villain, <clears throat> um, there's no... There's no richness within the nature of the villain that the hero can exploit. Mm. That villain is just a rock, a piece of you know concrete. Okay, they want power. Okay, mm. and so how if, if if the hero is going to bring that villain down, <clears throat> that the hero has a choice. 
to overpower, outsmart, or do both. Mm. But if the villain is a block of cement, he can only be overpowered because <laughs> mm-hmm. right. there's, there are, there's no string within him you can pull to outsmart him. <laughs> Got it. Right. right? <clears throat> and that's <clears throat> what makes such, so often makes action writing so uh, uh, dissatisfying ultimately uh-huh. is, is how do you get out of that situation? You cheat. <laughs> you bring in an extraneous force, a piece of bad luck for the villain, mm-hmm. a piece of good luck for the hero, um, uh, 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 <clears throat> a, uh, uh, a somebody in the villain's arsenal of uh, <clears throat> of uh, minions uh, is going to betray him. Mm. Uh, the uh, often that's a female character, whatever, <clears throat> and, and turns against the villain. I mean, they will do the cliche thing, uh, and it, it won't be it. What we want in a great action story is that the the overpowering of the villain is in the hands of the hero. <clears throat> they discover what they need. The weakness in the in the antagonist to exploit. Mm. They develop their power as a as a hero, <clears throat> and they do both. And uh, and and that it's in the in the protagonist's hands. Mm. <clears throat> but when you have uh, Zypers as villains, is nothing to outsmart. It's it's just a matter of uh, bigger and bigger gun, mm-hmm. right? Against the you know, uh, and so uh, uh, they don't really put the outcome in the hands of the characters. Mm-hmm. And um, um, that um, that's what I see most often. Yeah, is. I think what happens is that that writers get obsessed with their um, hero, um, and because that's that that's the character that if it gets to be uh, on screen, it's going to have a star playing that character, right? And um, and they neglect the the villain, the antagonist. Mm not realizing that the source of real great fascination is in an action story is the antagonist. Mm. The more powerful, the more complex, the more brilliant that character, the hero that has to rise to the occasion Mm. and become even more brilliant, even more powerful. But if the villain is, is, you know, simple, flat, negative force, then the, the, then the hero never comes to life. Interesting. And so, uh, and so that <clears throat> the great mistake I see in, in action writing is the neglect of the, uh, of the negative side of the story, the forces of, of antagonism, and, uh, uh, 
And because that's neglected, the hero is boring and uh, <laughs> not much to work with. Uh, not much well, to work with. I'm going to be yeah. thinking about that because I'm writing book six right now. Um, so I'm going to be thinking about that, looking at it with that yeah, eye when up, I go back. Come up, yeah, yeah, a really great, great, great villain. And often, of course, uh, often in modern writing, we combine those two characters. Mm. And so the uh, the central character is both villain and hero, mm. um, and uh, they're their own worst enemy, in a sense. Uh, so playing with that hero, villain, victim triad, mm -hmm. combining them, separating them, developing those three, with an emphasis. You know, the, the story can only be as powerful, as compelling as the forces of negation make it. <clears throat> and so developing the negative side of the story um, in, the, in the person of a villain or in the complexity of a hero villain um, is, is, is key to a, you know, achieving something really wonderful. And that's that's what I see so often is lacking. Interesting. They haven't really deeply and richly conceived and expressed the negative side. Uh -huh. uh, uh, so uh, uh, <clears throat> I urge. Well, that's I, I put. That's why I put such emphasis in uh, in my action book mm -hmm. on the development of the villain mm -hmm. or the negative force, however it's done right. in a pure villain or some combination of a hero villain or complex villains, whatever. But thinking um, deeply and creatively from the negative side, then the positive side reacts to that. Mm. <clears throat> and it then becomes more brilliant. God, love it. I love it. Um, there's a couple more things. I know we're, I'm looking at the time over there and I've, I've, I've but I want to... No, don't worry about my time. Okay. Okay. Oh, good, good, good. Uh, <laughs> um, when you look at something today, in general, uh, are movies becoming too formulaic? Um, lots of reboots, lots of remakes, those sorts of, sorts of things. Um, uh, what does that say about the future of storytelling and screenwriting? And does it, because when, when I look at it, I think, well, that's an opportunity. That's an opportunity to not do that and to break above the crowd um, because I'm aware of it. Um, do, do you see things becoming too formulaic? And we talked a little bit about it earlier, and I think you can see it in Hollywood. You can see it in, in publishing as well when there's something, a big success, and then everybody, then there's a bunch of other ones, a bunch of covers of books that look like the woman on the train type of a thing, and they're trade <laughs> paperbacks, and now they're all over the airport. And yeah, uh, yeah. But it, it happens, obviously, in Hollywood. You can see it on the screen. Um, but uh, but do, do you notice that? Is that something you think about? Yeah, there's nothing new about this. It's yeah. Always been like this. Mm. This has always been. If you go back, you know, it, in Shakespeare's time, mm. right? At the end of the, <clears throat> in the beginning of the 15th, 16th century, um, theater was so popular in uh, London that there were, I forget the number, but it's something like 40 theaters 
along the south bank of the Thames, wow. operating every day, and that that in that period, at, on any given day, half the population of London was in the theater. Wow. Okay. Jeez. All right. That's how big it was. Half yeah. the population of the city crossed the river to go to the theater, and um, and they would stand. You know, they were, they were called you know the ground ones. People with money had, had seats, benches. <laughs> um, and they copied each other constantly. There were forty theaters going on. And they were stealing from each other, <laughs> copying each other, right? <laughs> okay. And uh, uh, and out of all of that came Shakespeare. So I'm telling you, it's always been like that. Interesting. Um, and uh, it, 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 in the 19th century, it was the, the century of the novel, mm. right? The great this, the 20th century was the century of cinema. Film, but the 19th century is the century of the novel, and, and every culture wrote them. You know, not just English, French, German, Italian, Russian, Russian, especially. You know, and every every year, China, every culture wrote novels. If you could count up all the novels in the 19th century that were written and published. It'd be certainly into the hundreds of thousands mm. easily, right? I mean, there's a hundred years. If we're just a thousand novels a year, that's a hundred thousand right there. Wow. I'm sure it's closer to a million. Mm. The best of them fills one shelf. Mm. And what writers did, as they always have done, is novels would come out, they read the <laughs> novels and See, ah, this kind of a love story, that kind of whatever it is, you know, children with children's stories, whatever it is. And they would look uh, to, to who was making money, who was successful, and there was copying going on. Mm. Same thing in the 20th century. If you look at how many bazillion films were produced by the world in the 20th century, the best of them, once again, <clears throat> you know, um, is a very small number. Interesting. Uh, and all the rest of them were recycling other people's ideas, cliched. And here we are in the 21st century, the same thing is going on. So, I mean, it's one thing to say, well, it's always been like this. But, yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, but as far as the movies are concerned, Hollywood is concerned. Um, it's not only that people are copying and recycling. Um, it's that whole genres of, of storytelling are dying in Hollywood. Mm. Uh, love stories. Family dramas. Um, and and story, you know, stories of character change. The redemption plot, the disillusionment plot, the the <clears throat> character arcing evolution plot, devolution plot, stories of character change. You have, it, it, Hollywood never makes these films anymore. And uh, 
what has happened is that the writing talent, and there's a certain finite number of people in this world who have superb writing talent. The writing talent that was making the movies in the 20th century, in the 21st century, left. Mm. And it went over to long-form television. And so the best writing in the world is in long-form television, not just in America, but in England, in mm. Scandinavia, in Germany, and so forth. The best writing in the world now because the long-form television gives writers the opportunity to tell great, complex stories, <clears throat> complex characters over time, and the writers have power. In the movies, the director has all the power, creative power. <clears throat> the producer has all the financial power. The actor has even more power than either of those two. <laughs> and the writer is somewhere down the line. <laughs> in, in long form, the writer becomes the producer. <clears throat> and if they want direct, and like in Ozark, they can act. Mm. Right? <clears throat> um, and, and so people who can write... Uh, now have great creative opportunity and power in long-form television. So one of the reasons the movies have become so redundant and the franchises are so dominant <clears throat> is because the question, who's going to write these things, is getting harder and harder to answer in the movie business because the writers have left talented writers migrated over to, to um, long form uh, where they have power and money. Uh. <clears throat> right? The writer in long form television makes a hell of a lot more money <clears throat> than they would in a movie. Uh. And, and, um, and creative freedom. Freedom. Uh, <clears throat> and so... Um, so that's what's gone wrong with the movie business is um, is uh, the the only really important person in the history of the the movies is the writer. Mm -hmm. The only original artist in the making of a film is the writer, either the original screenwriter or the novelist who created the, the, the characters in the story from which the screenwriter is adapted, right? That is the only person that matters. Directing is an interpretive art form. <clears throat> Producing, designing, editing, composing music, costuming, production design, those are interpretive art forms. They are interpreting the work of the writer. Mm. And Hollywood has just, uh, that's always been the truth, but they've always pretended it wasn't the truth <laughs> because it's the director who spends the money. And the actors that, uh, that people trust, and so they go to films because of the cast. 
But now the coin has flipped. And, um, and so um, uh, Hollywood is um, desperate for writing talent. And, and, and they, um, the budgets are enormous now because they think that spectacle, mm. special effects, Mm-hmm. You know, it certainly is, you know, it's a, it's a value. It's wonderful when you see mm-hmm. something really beautifully done on screen, whatever. Uh, that's what matters. Um, and so they're neglecting the writing again. But anyway, that, that, that doesn't mean it's it's hopeless. It just means that that if, <clears throat> if you want to write a screenplay, um, <clears throat> the, and if you can do it... Uh, really creatively uh, in the action genre, that certainly is the key uh, to uh, to, uh, uh, to uh, the getting uh, established in Hollywood. Mm. And so I wrote this action book yep. for those people who uh, love the genre and want to do something really creative in it, and then uh, um, uh, take it uh, 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 to the to some into some direction and some wonderful execution that nobody's seen before. Uh-huh. And if you can bring some, you know, a whole new wonderful uh, execution of the action genre to Hollywood, <laughs> their their arms are open. I promise you. Well, I'd love to hear that. I absolutely love to hear that. (laughs) Obviously, look, nobody wants to necessarily repeat and make uh, the same, you know, repeat the same franchise over and over and over again. You'd like to create a a film that would establish a whole new franchise. (laughs) Yes. And so that that takes some genius. And so uh, I wrote the action book for those people who feel they have a genius for action, because if they master this art form and do it brilliantly, then um, then Hollywood, as I said, will uh, certainly embrace them. Well, with a couple of minutes that we have left, um, myth is the foundation of story and story structure. Aristotle, uh, what we learned about the hero's journey from Joseph Campbell. Um, what's uh, what are your thoughts on? Uh, myth is the foundation of story structure in in today's world. Is it something that that writers, screenwriters uh, that, think about? That, that, actually, that, that thought actually has it upside down. Mm. That's okay. Um, <clears throat> myth, and, and when you say myth, I think you mean the hero's journey. Yes. Okay, that particular myth is a story, right? And it has certain motifs to it. You go from, uh, you know, through the desert land to the green land and on, you know, and uh, certain adventures along the way, you know, the hero goes unconscious and is awakened and blah, blah. Okay. It is a, it is a, a very narrow uh, version of action mm. with certain set pieces to it. Uh, <clears throat> And, and it is a story, but it's a a kind of story. Mm. And and uh, a and, and so it is a subset, 
Now, mine are rather small, actually, in terms of numbers, rather small subset of the universe. Mm. The universe is story. <clears throat> the hero's journey is an illustration of that, but it's a very limited, narrow illustration of the universe of story. Mm. And so there are, as I list them in the book, there are many, many different fundamental genres. They are all aspects of the universal story. There are presentational genres, ways in which you express story and so on. Uh, but the universal story and the hero's journey is, is, is one little variation of that. Mm -hmm. And as I said, it, it's not, um, and it is narrow in this, and limited in a way, um, but adventure is much grander than that. Mm. Action adventure is much grander than that. And there's a, a thousand ways to tell an action adventure, adventure story. The hero's journey is a, is just is a one little formula, mm. and um, and it's as I said, it's only a small percentage of uh, of, of storytelling. So it's a mistake to think that the hero's journey is a template for you as a writer. Mm. <clears throat> it's simply one example, uh, and I included, of course, in my action book. But it is just one example of um, of the kinds of um, of um, action stories that we tell. Mm -hmm. uh, so I read it. The Hero of a Thousand Faces was a you know really wonderful book to read. I enjoyed it a lot. And um, uh, but I recognize that this is, as I said, just one <clears throat> pattern. Uh, it is not the universal. It's a part. It's mm. not the whole. Mm. And what happened in Hollywood is they mistook the part for the whole. Mm. And as a result, they copied it again and again and again and again. And it shrunk their thinking and their imaginations mm. uh, because they want commercial success. And they thought, you know, if you copy the hero's journey, then you'll have the success the way George Lucas did. Uh, and that's unfortunate. Interesting. And so uh, I think you should read it. I think it's one possible of many, many different subgenres of action. In my book, as I said, I, I take you through all the many, many subgenres of action, or genres of action and all their intergenres, mm -hmm. 16 of those. And so it's, 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 um, it's a big universe. <laughs> yeah. And the hero's journey is, is just one interesting little example. God, interesting. Um, and when you think thriller, what are those essential elements uh, that, that come to mind at first when you think thriller? Uh, deception. Uh, is, you know, the, the, in the thriller, you're trying to... Uh, <laughs> You see, in the, in, the, in the action story, usually, you know what's going on. There's an attack. Mm. <laughs> the villain, you know, does something terrible. 
Okay. And uh, it, it may be trickery involved, but in a thriller, you don't know what's going on. There are clues, things happen. Mm. Uh, but you're, you know, the, the motif of, uh, of a thriller is you're in the dark all the time. Mm. You figure out who do I trust? <clears throat> who can, who's, you know, who's going to betray me, right? <clears throat> what works and what doesn't? Why are they really doing it? If you think they know why they're doing it, but and there's so much um, unknown mm. in, a, in a thriller that you got to sort through all of that, uh, all of that uh, deception. Mm -hmm. And so um, uh, thrillers are wonderful because I love them. <laughs> Uh, because they really, uh, they really, the, the the hero of a thriller, the protagonist of a thriller, you know, is is somebody often who's not heroic. Mm -hmm. You know, <laughs> that like that Hitchcock classic. You know that uh, Cary Grant is mm -hmm. walking through the lobby and somebody calls a name and he raises his hand and the villains think that he's got the you know, and he's got to figure out what the hell is going on, uh -huh. right? Why are these people trying to kill me? The everyman. Uh, and and, uh, and so the, the, the thriller is a, is a wonderful dark form. Mm. And the emphasis then is on uh, tension. Mm. Action, uh, the subtitle of action uh, in my book is The Art of Excitement. Mm -hmm. In the action story, <clears throat> an excitement. Um, and uh, excitement is caused by the, the, the distance of the, of the uh, uh, in, in terms of life and death, the distance the hero has <clears throat> to how close is to death or how far away. Uh. Closer and closer and closer they come to death, the greater and greater the excitement. Uh, <clears throat> uh, in the thriller, uh, it's trying to figure out what's going on. Mm -hmm. And so the thriller is full of tension. And the tension, it's not, it's not excitement, it's tension. And the tension is you're in the dark and you don't know what to do, who to trust, who, you know, who's your, you know, who's on your side, who's not, what do they really want, mm. whatever. All this unknown creates an you know an incredibly tense mm -hmm. story. So the thrillers are tense. Action's exciting. Got it. Oh, I love it. And I know you have to go, but before you go, I want to read one passage here from story that that um, that stuck uh, that stood out to me. Uh, maybe because it's my uh, I don't know love of history, some of my background, uh, and also it's uh, I think it's important. Uh, you write uh, authoritative personalities like Plato fear the threat that comes not from idea but from emotion. Those in power never want us to feel. Thought can be controlled and manipulated, but emotion is willful and unpredictable. Artists threaten authority by exposing lies and inspiring passion for change. This is why when tyrants seize power, their firing squads aim at the heart of the writer. That's powerful. Yeah, you like that. Yeah, well, that's true. I mean, it's, you know, if it moves you, it's because it, it does. You, you, you sense the truth of it. <clears throat> that ideas can be manipulated. I mean, look at the politics of the world we're going through today. <clears throat> the lies, 
the positive, you know, that that uh, the the truth uh, that all that can be manipulated. Ideas can be manipulated, but when people get upset, when people get passionate, then there's real change. And so, um, uh, we tell stories that combine the two. The story is a meaningful emotional experience. It isn't just meaning. It isn't just emotion. It's a meaningful emotional experience. Mm. Uh, and uh, and uh, action stories, uh, the, the emotion of excitement, uh, <clears throat> combined with the tensions maybe of a thriller and other you know, emotional qualities, uh, but certainly the, um, the emotion of excitement uh, when an idea or a story excites you, uh, that's that is an experience uh, that you long and you hope for. Not boring, exciting. There it is. And uh, uh, when that happens, it's great. It's just oh, great. Well. I want to thank you so much for spending this time. I know how valuable your time is. Uh, I've learned so much. I sincerely appreciate it. It's been a distinct honor for me to do this. And uh, congratulations on the new book, Action, on all of this. Uh, thank you for sharing your gift with all of us. Uh, you're very kind. Thank you very much. It was a great talk. Great questions. Great great two hours well, i appreciate sure. that i appreciate that take care and uh one last thing before you leave is do you ever think of legacy with all of this that you have have done and all of this that you have contributed and uh your students uh continuing that forward teaching their students uh and their apprentices being mentors to others do you ever think in terms of legacy or are you just hard at, at work all the time yeah no i already look forward i am writing story two all right. As we speak. I love right. it. Breaking news. I am in the chapter three of story two. All right. And I, I've learned a lot over the last 25 years since I wrote story one. And so story two is going to be a whole new expansion and idea of um, story. And um, and so yeah, the legacy is nice. But I'm, I'm looking ahead. I want to take story into uh, a new a depth and uh, quality that it didn't have in the first version. Well, I cannot wait to read that. And uh, once again, thank you for everything. And uh, hopefully I'll see you in person one of these days soon. I do too. You take care now. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. A special thanks to our presenting sponsor, Navy Federal Credit Union. I've been a member since 1996. That is my first year in the military. And right now, when you become a member of Navy Federal Credit Union, life gets better. That's why they created a fully loaded car buying experience. I've bought cars and motorcycles using it in the past. You can finance, buy, protect, and enjoy your auto purchase all from one convenient place. They have pre-approval that's good for 90 days, so you know what you can afford while you shop. They also offer great auto loan rates. You can shop for new and used cars with Navy Federal's car buying service powered by TrueCar. You can also get exclusive member savings with Carfax, SiriusXM, and more. They're always available with 24-7 member service representatives to answer any questions. 
Learn more at NavyFederal.org slash car buying. Credit and collateral subject to approval. Navy Federal Credit Union is federally insured by NCUA. Check them out. NavyFederal.org. I want to thank my friends at Black Rifle Coffee for sponsoring the Danger Close podcast. I've been a huge fan for the longest time. Drink Black Rifle Coffee every day. And if you keep your eyes peeled, you will notice that perhaps Chris Pratt is wearing a Black Rifle Coffee t-shirt, not unsimilar to this one, in the Amazon series adaptation of The Terminal List. Now you can go to blackriflecoffee.com slash dangerclose and use code dangerclose 20 at checkout for 20% off your purchase and your first coffee club order. Black Rifle Coffee, America's Coffee, keep crushing. All right, let's talk about 10,000.cc. So 10,000, awesome company. If you have tried their interval shorts or their tactical shorts, which these are right here, you know that you are not going back to anything else. These things are awesome. And uh, I got a pair of pants from them recently too. And man, amazing, amazing. Um, I've worn a lot of shorts over the years, obviously being a West Coast SEAL at Team 5 when I started out. So that was kind of the, the thing. Um, but I have worn a lot of shorts and these ones hands down, the best. I mean, that's just how it goes. Uh, they were tested by over 50 special operations members in their testing phase. So it makes sense that they're awesome, but, uh, definitely try these out. Go to 10,000.cc, uh, follow them on Instagram. Same thing, 10,000.cc on Instagram. Uh, but go to the website, check it out. Super easy to order. Uh, there's not crazy amount of different options. So, uh, and then there's packages on there as well. I mean, they just do a fantastic job in all that they do. Free shipping, free returns, uh, go to 10,000 dot cc slash danger close for 15% off your order. You will not regret it. Welcome to the gear highlight portion of the danger close podcast. I'm going to start over here with this. Ah, man, how cool is this Kalishnikov? It's a print. This photo is taken by James Ropley. He takes the photos for the Vickers Guide and the Vickers Guide series of books. They're essentially coffee table books. You've probably heard me talk about them before, but uh, Larry Vickers, James Ropley, now they have a bunch of uh, subject matter experts that also contribute, but those books are my first stop when it comes to unique weapon systems for the novels. Um, amazing. Uh, they're so cool. Check them out, vickersguide.com. And then they have a couple prints, but I think they're all sold out on there. But this is one of them. And I thought this was just an awesome picture. So uh, James, thank you so much for for finding this and, and sending it to me. And uh, just super cool. So thank you so much. What else? All right. Naval, here we go. United States Naval Special Warfare. This book right here. Uh, once again, coffee table esque type book and has a history of the SEAL teams in here. And this thing is, is pretty cool. The uh, Navy SEAL Museum sent this out. So thank you guys. If you have not made the trek down to the UDT SEAL Museum in Fort Pierce, Florida, you should definitely do it. They have done an incredible job with that museum. So check them out online. Just a, there are a wealth of knowledge online and then take at least a day, but you might need more because uh, it's probably a two day trip down there because they did such a great job 
with that museum. But uh, check them out for sure and follow them on the social channels and get one of these as well if you are a frogman or an aspiring frogman. So very cool right there. Badass workbench right here. Badass dash workbench. This thing is serious. Check them out too. They made this desk, brought it all the way out here. And uh, man, could not be happier with this thing. Incredible. And send me. So send me right here. This is out now. You can go to sendmemovie.com to find out about it or go to Amazon Prime. You can watch it there. It is a one hour documentary about the fall of Kabul. If there are any proceeds, they all go to save our allies and their mission. So it's not an honor to be involved with this as an executive producer, but these guys did all the work for themselves in harm's way. And check it out. Sendmemovie.com. Amazon Prime, watch it. One hour, it's powerful, it's emotional, and it is out right now. All right, last thing. What's this? KJ Murphy's custom hatter. Yep, kjmurphys.com. So I was with uh, Mike Glover of Fieldcraft Survival at their holiday party last December, and Mike found out that I didn't have a cowboy hat. So they just happened to have... KJ Murphy's right there and uh, measured and made a little custom hat here. And this thing just arrived. Very nice note in here as well. So thank you guys. And look at that. Uh-huh. Got a little camo band around the top right there. And you can't really tell, but right here, cross tomahawks. Yep. That is, there it is. Let's see. Yep. Especially made for Jack Carr right there. Very cool. But uh, now Mike and I have something to wear when we can uh, sit around and drink some whiskey together. So let's see. Oh, there it is. Take care out there. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. To find out more about Robert McKee, go to mckeestory.com. That's M-C-K-E-E Story. Dot com. And be sure to pick up his latest book, Action. If you have not read Story, read that. Also, Dialogue and Character, but Action is out right now. You can follow me at Jack Carr USA on the social channels, officialjackcar.com. That is the website. You can sign up for the email there and click on Shop for the Merchandise. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to leave a five-star rating and review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Until the next time, take care out there. Be safe, stay strong, keep fighting. In case you missed it, on a recent episode of Danger Close, an Ironclad original, Jack Carr sat down with former presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard. Set aside all the labels, mm. you know, oh, well, because I've been getting asked this a lot, like, well, are you left or are you right? Are you progressive or are you conservative? What are box you... do you fit in? Which exactly, box do you check? Completely. Are you an enemy or right, right. An How, Like, what filter should I use when I'm looking at you? And, like, I've always been an independent-minded person. Mm. Always. Be sure to check out the full interview wherever you get your podcasts.